Welcome to Gibraltar Stories. I'm Lindsay Weston and this is the first part of The Closed Frontier 50 Years On, a podcast mini-series about the closure of the border between Gibraltar and Spain. Franco, as a military dictator, remember, who had come to power after winning the Spanish Civil War, found Gibraltar to be a very convenient political scapegoat to distract attention from problems that he had at home. Fifty years ago, this month, Spain's General Franco closed the frontier, the land border between Gibraltar and Spain. Families were split. Some faced the difficult decision of having to choose which side of the border to live on. Supply lines were cut, stopping anything crossing from Spain, including food, medical oxygen and communion wine. Spanish workers were forced to leave their jobs in Gibraltar. Some even lost businesses, leading many of them to move away from the area in search of employment elsewhere and leaving a huge hole in the labour force here. Ferry services between the Rock and the Spanish port of Algeciras across the Bay of Gibraltar ceased to operate and telephone lines were cut off. The only way in and out of Gibraltar was by air or by sea. The main route was the Tangier-Gibraltar ferry. Well, I found myself on the beautiful daylight today On the Tangier-Gibraltar ferry Letting me here with so many things to say Slowly When I heard that the 50th anniversary of these events was coming up, I felt compelled to find out more about it, and I've spent the past few months speaking to Gibraltarians about their memories of the time, how it affected them and their families, and how it ultimately affected Gibraltar itself. In this podcast, I'll share some of the stories I've heard. This week, I'm looking at what happened in the run-up to the closure and what the closure and the restrictions which were put in place beforehand meant to the people who were here at the time. For local historian Tito Vallejo-Smith, the build-up to the closure began 34 years earlier in 1935, when the future Spanish dictator paid a visit to Gibraltar and set it in his sights. To be honest... It started in 1935. Franco was not yet the dictator in Spain. Uh, they were planning to, to to have a rebellion in Spain. And uh, it's a coincidence that he visited Gibraltar on that same date, 1935. And I'm sure that he had a good look around because when he went back, he ordered for a, 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 an in, intricate study of Gibraltar's defences, military strength, everything to do with the defence of Gibraltar, you know. And he started planning what we call Operation G, which was the invasion of Gibraltar. So if you go around, cross to La Línea, you see all these bunkers along the coast, all these bunkers that you have around. They were not there, as they said, to protect themselves from a British incursion. It was the opposite. It was their preparation for the invasion of Gibraltar, you see? Because uh, Franco had had a chat with Mussolini. Mussolini had big ideas of conquering the whole of the Mediterranean, you know, his new Roman Empire and he said to himself before he comes and takes Gibraltar I'm going to take it over I want it for me okay and that's when it all really started later on um, the the civil war started and that visit to Gibraltar by Franco was to to get the uh, the the backing of the British government you know and to Britain you're the the enemy of, of my of my enemy is my friend you know and in those days, the enemy was communism. That was what Spain was fighting against, or rather the nationals, the, the army, Franco. 
and Britain obviously didn't want anything to do with the communists, so they really backed the, 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 the Spanish Civil War from the Franco side, you know, with fuel and things like that. Many Gibraltarians, though, cite the royal visit to the Rock in 1954 by the newly crowned Queen Elizabeth, the Duke of Edinburgh, Prince Charles and Princess Anne as the catalyst for growing tensions ahead of the frontier closure. The Queen's Commonwealth tour brought the royal family to Gibraltar on the Royal Yacht Britannia. This presented Madrid and the Spanish consul in Gibraltar with a very delicate diplomatic path to tread. Dr Jennifer Ballantyne Pereira, director at the Gibraltar Garrison Library, explains. The Queen visits Gibraltar as part of her wider uh, tour of the Commonwealth and she's the Queen of England and she's the Queen of Gibraltar. And we had a Spanish consul in Gibraltar at the time. And this was the, it became a, a major diplomatic concern for Spain. And, and I'd say a geopolitical one as well, because the concern was as follows. Spain has maintained its claim, its historic claim alive since 1704, and especially uh, thereafter, 1713, we have the Treaty of Utrecht. And still we have two sieges that follow that within the the 18th century. Spain is posed with this dilemma. The dilemma as follows, that once the Queen arrives at Gibraltar, protocol steps in. So the consular corps will be invited to meet with the Queen, any diplomats in Gibraltar, any dignitaries... And they will be meeting the Queen and acknowledging that she is the Queen of England and the Queen of Gibraltar. So how could the Spanish consular presence in Gibraltar acknowledge that by meeting her? And this raises a dilemma to the extent that uh, there's a lot of turn and fro between Gibraltar and Madrid in how we're going to deal with this and in the, the solution that was, was in fact... Uh, uh, proposed by the, the consul, the Spanish consul in Gibraltar, was that we close the Spanish consul and therefore avoid an embarrassment in refusing to meet with the Queen, but also avoid weakening our position by actually meeting with the Queen. And so the consul closes. And of course, this I've, I've given you a potted history of this. <laughs> uh, there is far more to how this very subtle and complex dilemma uh, was debated, discussed, and how the final solution uh, came about. But very interesting, and I'm sure that this gives us some sort of an indication about how deep-seated this, um, in Spanish, um, I think in in the, the, the national consciousness even perhaps, certainly in political circles and diplomatic circles, how, how, how deep this runs. And, and how to, one, avoid a situation that acknowledges that the Queen of England is the Queen of Gibraltar. But secondly, and very rightly so, how to avoid what is a major diplomatic incident and an embarrassment between England and Spain, I'd say. It was after that royal visit in 1954 that changes began to happen at the border. Clive Galt is a journalist and press advisor to the government of Gibraltar. And it just started with a lot of harassing of French tourists who used to come through the border in their cars to go get a ferry into Morocco, to Tangier, and the other way around. And that was the initial harassing that we were subjected to. And then they decided to start creating more problems with Spanish workers, 
making them have special permits and not give them permits. Uh, so in other words, clearly making difficult, uh, uh, creating a difficult scenario for, uh, for the Gibraltar economy and for the Gibraltarians. And it ended up with taking the whole issue to the United Nations, uh, whereby they argued that this was a colony that had to be decolonized. This was the age of decolonization, the winds of change, Harold Macmillan's winds of change in Africa. Uh, and of course, the British were very unpopular at the time. I mean, they, uh, they had to decolonize uh, most of Africa, part of Asia, and you name it, half the world, if you like. And uh, all these new countries didn't like their colonial masters, and they supported the Spanish thesis on Gibraltar, which was you decolonize through inter uh, territorial integrity. In other words, you, you, this was belonged to Spain 200, 300 years ago, and it goes back to us. And the people there are a prefabricated uh, population. They have no right to self-determination, and uh, that's it. It's not theirs, it's ours. So in support of that, they got resolutions at the UN which went their way. They were supported by all the Spanish ex-colonies or the Spanish-speaking countries of South America uh, and the Afro-Asians. So Britain basically lost the day when they took the vote. And that led to a resolution calling for um, Gibraltar to be handed over by the 1st of October 1969. And of course, Britain refused to accept that, and we didn't want it. We'd, we had a referendum where we voted overwhelmingly to remain British, and Spain decided to close the border. Gibraltar's Deputy Chief Minister, Dr Joseph Garcia, explained to me how the mood around the world towards decolonisation gave Franco the perfect opportunity to make a bid to get Gibraltar back for Spain. I think Franco, as a military dictator, remember, who had come to power after winning the Spanish Civil War, found Gibraltar to be a very convenient political scapegoat to distract attention from problems that he had at home. And we see that throughout his uh, time in, in government. But I think the, the immediate catalyst for this was that after the, after the uh, Second World War, the UN asked its member states to submit a list of territories which they controlled, which were not fully self-governing as yet. As you can imagine, the United Kingdom controlled a huge chunk of those. I think something like 50 out of 70 were, were British territories. And slowly what you see after World War II is decolonization, and many of these territories then choose to become independent nations and to go their own way. For example, Malta and Cyprus in the 1960s. And what happens in 1963, as the UN is going through these territories one by one, is that they come to Gibraltar. And then the issue of Gibraltar surfaces at the UN in a way in which it had never really happened before. There had been debates and discussions, but people didn't really take those very seriously. But in 1963, it was our turn to be decolonized almost. Spain declared an interest, uh, declared itself to be an interested party, and it, even though it was not a member of the Committee on Decolonization was allowed to be present at the sessions where Gibraltar was being discussed. And I think then the whole issue becomes extremely politicized because of that. And rather than look at Gibraltar in the, in the same way as they had other colonial territories to be decolonized, the UN 
accepts uh, in in its consensus uh, decisions and in subsequent decisions that Spain has an interest and that Gibraltar needs to be decolonized in discussions with Spain, bearing in mind the interests of the population of the territory. And that goes hand in hand, and Franco's uh, diplomatic onslaught at the United Nations goes hand in hand with pressure exerted on the ground here physically against Gibraltar at the border. And we see that in the withdrawal of Spanish labor, in the increase in restrictions at the border, who could cross and who couldn't cross, and how long it took you to cross, delays, which indeed you know, we, we have even, even to this day um, now and again. And, and what happens in 1967 is that the UK says, well, look, the UN has asked us to decolonize Gibraltar and to bear in mind the interests of the population. We now need to find out where the people think those interests lie. So I'm going to hold a referendum in Gibraltar and let people determine where it is that their future lies. That ref- the UN immediately, and Spain objected, and the UN immediately said that uh, they did not want the referendum to happen on the 10th of September, that it ran against previous resolutions on the subject, and um, the UK decided to hold it anyway. And the UN refused to send observers, so the UK um, observers from the Commonwealth came and they headed by New Zealand's then ambassador to France and, and other, other diplomats from different Commonwealth countries. They came and they supervised the referendum. It was an overwhelming vote to remain British. 12,138 people voted to remain British and voted for the promise of further constitutional reform that would follow uh, if the, the vote went in Britain's way. And only 44 people voted in favour of the Spanish uh, option. Now, that infuriated the Spaniards and infuriated the UN, and even though they had said they wouldn't recognize the referendum, and and indeed they didn't, the UN reacted with further resolutions which declared it to be null and void, and which repeated what it had said in the past in relation to our decolonization. And Franco took that that, uh, position, that UN position, and it emboldened him to take further action. So the restrictions at the border intensified as time went on, Air restrictions had also been imposed at that time, and um, aircraft, military aircraft, RAF aircraft were forbidden from using Spanish air- airspace if the destination was Gibraltar. That restriction is still in place. And um, so we had sea restrictions, we had air restrictions, and then the restrictions by land culminates in 1969 when Franco decides to close the land border between Gibraltar and Spain, and that happens in June, and we'll be commemorating that anniversary In August 1966, Franco stepped up his restrictions against Gibraltar by preventing female Spanish workers from crossing the frontier to work on the rock. The women, who worked as domestic staff, hospital auxiliaries, shop assistants and in Gibraltar's hotels and restaurants were no longer able to come to work. Paula Galliano was working in the maternity unit at St Bernard's Hospital at the time and she says it had a huge impact. The next thing they did was stop the female labour force and many people in Gibraltar who had maids in their house and particularly at the hospital, all the domestic staff were Spanish ladies and overnight we had no, no domestic staff in the hospital so we had no cleaners, no cooks in the kitchen. It was a disaster, it really was. 
Fortunately, earlier that year, a new group had been born, the Gibraltar Housewives Association. The housewives had been mobilised by a number of young women who'd returned to Gibraltar after being evacuated during the war years and were tired with the patriarchy of Gibraltarian society. They wanted women to have a voice. I've got some, something that might interest you. And this is Angela Smith. Ah, the uh, one of the founders. Magda and Ariola. And me behind here. Oh yes, I can That's see me. you. The yes. group was led by Angela Smith. A meeting was called for all of the women in Gibraltar to attend at the old DSA club on Queensway. Irma Casiaro was one of those women. They organised a meeting in a Nissan hut at Queensway. I wanted to go. And uh, I went with Fabian's mother, who was a very good friend of mine, uh, Magda. But I had three kids, two boys and a baby. And my husband said, look, you've got to promise me not to enter in the committee. Because you, then your mother gets annoyed and she's very right. Because you got a baby. So I put the baby in her push her, hang on to Magda, and we both went with the baby to the meeting. But I behaved, uh, because I thought he was right. I didn't enter the first committee. Magda did, and I didn't, but of course I was there to work for anything that was needed. And so it was decided that we had to help. I can tell you that the hall was fully packed, fully packed. Not only with us, most of us Catholics know, Church of England, and Jewish ladies. We all worked together. Quickly, the housewives of Gibraltar scrambled to fill the gaps left by the Spanish female workers. At that time, it was the tradition for women to give up their work once they were married to look after their home and children. Gibraltarian women volunteered for duty to work in a whole host of different jobs. It was decided that something had to be done. And one of the things most important was the food. We had to help out. There was no one in the market. So everybody did that little bit, selling fruit and vegetables, even fish, right? Not the butchers. The butchers were there, but some of them were locals. So that was all right. But uh, we invaded the market and helped out. I had to take my little girl in a pushchair, or else I wouldn't be allowed to go and help. So as I wanted to help, I took her. To put her on one side, I told fruit and vegetables. <laughs> and then there was other important things. We even worked in hospitals, especially the KG5 hospital, which was cancer patients. We, had, we worked in the kitchen, doing the dishes. There were no dishwasher or anything like that, more primitive. And we helped up there and all the other hospitals. Hospital, we helped. There was an emotional toll for the Spanish female workers. It didn't just have an economic impact. For many Spanish women, they'd worked in the same jobs for years, even decades, and for some, they were part of the family. 
Annette Tunbridge recalls the day their domestic help left for the final time. I remember when my my uh, brother was born in 65 in October. Soon after, the women who worked from, from Spanish women were, were removed by Franco. Um, I don't know the exact date, but I remember well because the lady who used to come home to, to us who had been there for many, 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 many years cried on leaving my brother Francis because he was uh, the only boy of a whole group of girls that had been born and then just Francis was the little one and he was blonde and blue-eyed and she really remember her, Elena. She, I remember her crying because she wouldn't be seeing him because it wasn't just that they weren't coming into work, they weren't coming in, period. Whilst this was going on, things were getting tricky at the border. Long queues formed as people attempted to cross over into Spain and back again into Gibraltar. For artist Ambrose Avellano, it was something he'd grown up with as he travelled to Spain to visit his relatives there, and he and his family had learned to live with it. I was, as a child, remember being on a queue for hours, both ways, yeah? Uh, mainly on that side to start off, but then on this side as well because they would slow things down. So it's very gradual, it took years to come to the point of the closure frontier. Um, and I took it as, because we had been brought up with this, I took it as part of our lives. It wasn't something that all of a sudden happened. Yeah? So uh, you, you learn to live with this situation. So there's a queue. So you, you work where you wait until what time you're going to go when there's not so many cars in the queue. And you, um, you worked around it. For others, though, the growing tensions at the border turned their focus further afield. With the promise of a new life in London, Eileen Gordon and her family packed up and left Gibraltar. In the year 1966, m- m- my daughter was one year old and um, the situation on the with Spain was pretty bad. And my husband was was working as a croupier in the new casino. And he was offered a job in London. So seeing the situation here, which was very unstable, we thought, you know, we'd go and perhaps it would be a new life and we might have a future there. So we decided to move to London. But London, uh, swinging London wasn't swinging for us. And he worked nights, and my daughter was a baby, just one year old, and we decided we didn't want to stay and uh, live in the UK. So we decided we'd come back. I was pregnant again, so we decided to wait until the baby was born, and then we'd come back. So as things got even worse, we thought, well, at least we can be with our family, and we can all, you know, uh, help towards whatever happens, and we can all be together. So we came back in, uh, my second daughter was born in February 67, and we decided that we'd come by April, we'd be back. So by April, we put everything we had in our car, the two babies, one was two, the other was two months. My mum would come to be with me at the birth as well, and we drove all the way from the UK to Gibraltar. And as we crossed the frontier into Spain, the first things we would see was graffiti on the wall saying, Gibraltar Español. So that, you don't know, didn't help us very much and we were a bit worried, but our car had British number plates, so we were thought we'd be safer with that. Anyhow, we came all the way down and when we got to the frontier, we knew that it was going to be closed any time, but it was closed. When we came to the frontier, we found that the frontier was actually closed for cars. So it was lovely, a beautiful uh, day in, in April, and the rock was there welcoming us, but we couldn't get through in the car. So in the end, we had to walk across and with the two babies and my mom, and my husband took the car, and his brother-in-law came to give him a hand, and they went to Algeciras 
took the ferry to Morocco, and the next day took the Monscalpe home to Gibraltar, and that's where we stayed. And my children were two months and two years, respectively, when they came in. And by the time the frontier opened again, they were teenagers. So they missed out on a lot of things during those years. In the late 60s, constitutional change came to Gibraltar after the referendum on British sovereignty in 1967 and much negotiation with Whitehall, the colony of Gibraltar became the city of Gibraltar and the legislature and municipal council merged into the Gibraltar House of Assembly. It was a long, slow build-up to the closure of the frontier on the 8th of June 1969, but Dr Jennifer Ballantyne Pereira says that the wording of the new Gibraltar Constitution, which was published on the 23rd of May that year, was the final straw for the Spanish government. In my view, if we're talking about the closure of the border, we're not just talking about that one Sunday in, 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 in June when the border closed. We are talking about 10 years at least of restrictions, of a geopolitical discourse informing Gibraltar in a way that was very devastating because the aim was at least the discourse that came from Spain in terms of its claim um, aimed at delegitimizing a people and delegitimizing uh, the right to Gibraltarians to their homeland. Now that had a huge impact. But this was a build-up over at least 10 years and then when the border closes, it closes. And it didn't well, yes, it was, it was quite shocking. But ultimately, it did not come as a surprise, I think, in a way. There was some expectation that something would happen, especially after the publication of the 1969 Constitution. So the preamble to the Constitution creates, well, it creates a discussion around um, if, whether or not uh, rights to self-determination have been awarded to Gibraltarians uh, when any decisions are made over whether Gibraltar will be returned to Spain or not. And so the preamble observes that the wishes of Gibraltar have to be taken into account in any decision and ahead of any um, talks between Spain and Britain on sovereignty. So that gives Gibraltarians some right to self-determination. And this was really, for Spain, quite devastating because they felt that Gibraltarians did not have that right, and they still maintain it. They maintain that their claim is a territorial claim. So there's a separation between Spain's right to self-determination to achieve this territorial integrity, and then there's the right of Gibraltarians and their right to self-determination to have a foothold over their homeland and their territory. And at that point, when the preamble uh, appears on the 1969 Constitution, this does uh, disrupt uh, a sense of um, Spain's claim. And so I feel sure, although I haven't seen any of this in archival material, I'm sure it's locked away somewhere, uh, I, I, I suspect that um, there was a feeling that the preamble may create a little bit of a kerfuffle once it was published. And it did. Within weeks, the border closes and the preamble is, is cited as a cause. 
The frontier closure was seen as a way for the Spanish government to force the hand of the British authorities. Clive Galt says the Spanish hoped to make Gibraltar into a problem which Britain would want to get rid of. The foreign minister at the time, the Spanish foreign minister, uh, Fernando Maria Castilla, uh, was of the opinion that the only way the British would sit down to negotiate the sovereignty of Gibraltar would be under duress and if he gave them a problem. So he decided that by putting pressure and closing the border, he would give them a problem, primarily an economic problem, because they would have to support Gibraltar, sustain and support, which was the policy that was adopted during the closure, and at the same time cripple the dockyard, which of course was the mainstay of the economy as well at the time, and seriously affected their capacity to, to run a, a military base on the rock. As it turned out, the British took other measures. The MOD decided to bring in Moroccan workers, uh, and we set out to work harder by having two jobs, having a full-time job and getting a part-time job. And uh, women, many women didn't work at the time. They started getting out and working. So we managed to replace the problems in the economy with a bigger effort, and that meant the economy went ahead. The People newspaper, Sunday, June the 8th, 1969. Gibraltar cut off by Spain. Spain will tomorrow cut off Gibraltar from the rest of Europe by finally closing her frontier with the rock. The move means the La Línea land border, already closed to tourist traffic, will now be shut against 4,500 Spanish workers who cross into the British colony daily. The ferry from Algeciras will also be cut off. Only BEA flights from Madrid will be able to enter Gibraltar from Spanish territory. Announcing the move, an official statement issued in Madrid last night claimed that the Franco government had been goaded into action by the new Gibraltar constitution, which totally ignores Spain's claims to sovereignty. First reaction of the governor of Gibraltar, Admiral Sir Varel Begg, following a meeting of the Gibraltar Council, was that there will be no crisis, no emergency. It will be business as usual on the rock. An announcement had been made just days earlier by the Spanish government that the frontier would be closing and all Spanish workers should leave the rock with their belongings before the closure. On Sunday the 8th of June 1969, crowds of onlookers gathered on both sides of the frontier to watch proceedings. Juan Carlos Teuma was a cameraman with the Gibraltar Broadcasting Corporation and was sent to the frontier to film the events that were unfolding. Well, it was uh, an international event, no doubt. It wasn't a local event. There was press here from all over the world. And uh, I wouldn't call it a night, I would call it a whole day, you know, there was a plenty of activity all day we didn't even know when the the closing would take effect so we we had a lot of activities because there was demonstrations on both sides and we were busy filming the demonstrations on the Gibraltar side and doing what we could from the other side not crossing the line because uh, a policeman actually told me if I stepped on the line where the gate was, you know, he would pull me in. You know, didn't feel like being detained, and even less by the fascist police. You know. 
many Gibraltarians stayed at home and watched the scenes from the border later on on television. Tito Vallejo-Smith was one of them. He says in spite of the anger and upset caused by the closure, the British spirit and sense of humour was still present. There was a crowd of about 400. The GBC was there televising it. And once they started closing, well, there were lots of insults, you know, murderers, you know, and, and lots of Spanish swear words and things. And then when they started closing the, the, the doors, they started singing God Save the Queen. And then, we all live in a yellow submarine. <laughs> Everybody's singing, we all live, like, we are all, all locked up in a yellow submarine, like, you know. And that was, that's the British humour, you see, coming out. Although they were saying same things in Spanish and insulting and all that, but then the British humour came out. We all live in a, you know, <laughs> there you go. That, that, that showed them, that was televised by, by lots of television channels that were there filming, you know, to show them that we have that English phlegm and humour when we are, we are faced with a, a bad situation like that. You know, that was, that was out of this world, the yellow submarine bit. But for David Bentata, who had made his way down to the border, it was anger rather than humour that he felt. He said the atmosphere was tremendous. There was a lot of anger, a lot of Dutch courage, and a, a, a lot of misunderstanding. You see, for, for us, we were not that politically aware, at least not my age group. For us, it was an us against them. They're closing the frontier, they're trying to make us prisoners, they're insulting us. We're angry at them. We couldn't see much beyond that. At the time, we definitely could not see that this would create in Gibraltar the identity that it did. Or that we would develop, we'd become more entrepreneur because of it. There was a lot of anger. A lot of anger. It was... Uh, it was verging on violence but we couldn't be violent against anybody because the frontier actually was closed and we were like in a semicircle there we could offend them we could insult them boy did we do that <laughs> but uh, it, it was I remember it vividly I remember it was very very harsh then we went home and then you start thinking what does this mean to us you know I can't go horse riding to Spain like I did every Sunday um, we can't go to have a, a cerveza and tapas there we can't go for cheap things over there anymore. We've got to, well, where are we going to get our fruit and veg? There was uh, there were several reporters there, and one of them was from the BBC. Just stuck the, the microphone in front of me and asked me, uh, "What? Who do you think is to blame about that?" And I said, "Britain. You've got a dictator on that side. You've got mighty Great Britain, and they can't control that. If, if Britain wanted to, do this would not happen." And of course, no microphone. So your quote never saw the light of day. Nope. It's seeing it now is a bit late. <laughs> we'll get it out there now. Yep, and was also interviewed on the night that it opened, 16 years later. Um, the Spanish reporter stuck a tape recorder in front of me, and by then, you know, uh, the anger had dissipated. We took it as, as if we had won a victory because the frontier was opening, and I suppose it was a victory of sorts. We didn't know what, what would happen afterwards because it was open partially with a lot of, of um, restrictions. Uh, it was only opened for pedestrian traffic. It only opened to vehicular traffic two years after that. But it was a release. It really was a release. It made us focus again and live more universally, I suppose. And so, at around 11.30 on Sunday the 8th of June 1969, a border guard on the Spanish side of the frontier walked up to the Spanish gates closed them 
slid the lever across and padlocked them shut. They would remain closed for more than 13 years and didn't fully reopen until the 5th of February 1985. GBC presenter David Hoare reflected on the scenes at the frontier. Little did the people of Gibraltar know how long their ordeal would last. On that rainy night, as the clock struck 11.30, Spanish security guards closed the gates of the frontier. Gibraltar guards sang God Save the Queen in the pouring rain. On the Spanish side of the frontier, a handful of reporters recorded the scene. Next week on The Frontier Closure 50 Years On, I'll be looking at the impact of the closure on food and other supplies and what that meant for the people of Gibraltar. If you've enjoyed listening to this episode, please share it with your friends. You can subscribe to Gibraltar Stories for free on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, SoundCloud and Spotify. And you can follow Gibraltar Stories on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. My sincere thanks to everyone who contributed to this episode. A full list of contributors can be found in the show notes for this episode at gibraltarstories.com. My thanks also to the Gibraltar National Archivist Anthony Pitaluga for all his help while I was researching this project over several months and for granting me the permission to use the image of the closed frontier to illustrate this miniseries. My thanks also to Philip Valverde, whose performance of Going South features in the series, and to GBC for allowing me to use the news footage featuring the commentary of the late David Hoare. Until next week, goodbye for now, and thanks very much for listening. Gibraltar, my Gibraltar Keep your face clean from the north side of the border My Gibraltar, my Gibraltar Keep your nose clean from the north side of the border